Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for returning for another episode of the Our Fractured Minds podcast, where we're working to redefine what it means to live with mental illness. I'm your host, Jen Reno, and I'm joined today by Edie Hitchcock, a psychodynamic psychotherapist working with depth counseling in Chicago with offices in The Loop and Ravenswood. Edie specializes in what we might term identity conflict and works with individuals toward a deeper sense of integration within a world that seems to demand labels for every experience under the sun, but doesn't necessarily encourage understanding the experiences themselves. Her practice is queer as well as poly and kink friendly. She is dedicated to improving a sense of creativity, grace, thoughtfulness, and courage in the lives of individuals. Edie has been in the field for several years, having worked in community mental health, with low-income adults who suffer from chronic and severe mental health disorders, and is a fellow at the well-regarded Chicago Center for Contemporary Psychotherapy. Currently, she's a doctoral student at the European Graduate School in Philosophy and Critical Thought, where she is focusing primarily on the politics, ethics, and physio-philosophical aspects of listening and subjectivity. Prior to her work as a psychotherapist and social worker, Edie worked in pastry, taught yoga, and completed her first master's in film and digital media. She also owns a BA in English and Women's Studies at the University of Chatham in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Wow, I feel inadequate after reading all of that. That is amazing. You've done so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we've got a little bit about you already, but what we don't know is what was it that made you so interested in the field of mental health to begin with? Well, I had kind of, as you heard from the bio, I had kind of been skipping around for a while, trying to find something that really fit, you know, that really felt right. Um, or, well, the reality of it, I was ricocheting from one thing to the other. Um, but so I had hit a pretty difficult time in my personal life, and I was kind of bottoming out a little bit. And um, so though I sought out a therapist and um, after about a year with him I kind of started getting this teeny tiny little figment of an idea that this might be what I want to do and um, from there I kind of began to work through all of the different reasons for why and how one can get into mental health. You know, it's, it's not necessarily recommended to get into the field with, I just want to help people. Like it's always good to kind of figure out what else might be motivating or driving you to, you know, save the world. Maybe you want to be a superhero. Maybe you just want to be nice to people. So these, these ideas and, and motivations are complex. And um, I think it takes a lot of, personal reflection to kind of figure out how one gets to where one is. Yeah, no doubt. Like how many people spend their whole life just trying to figure out where they need to go next? And I'm afraid I'm going to tangent here and I don't mean to, but this has been on my mind for weeks. Like we're all pre-programmed as to what we're supposed to be by society around us. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, I had to get married. I had to have two kids. I had to own a house. I had to go to mm -hmm. college. But like what you've talked about is you've really taken some time to explore yourself, but you didn't just settle on a career, right? You wanted to find internally what it was that made you want to do that. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, once you get to where you want to be, it's all, all of the torture of it kind of fades. <laughs> but I want to be quite honest about the fact that like it takes an awful lot of 
angst and passionate experimentation <laughs> before you can actually figure out what you want to do. At least in my case, it did. As someone who works with sexuality, gender, and relationships specifically related to anxiety, what do you find is the biggest roadblock that keeps people from breaking through what ails them? I mean, every human is so different. Um, but if I had to generalize, I think that at least, okay, so I'll just, I'll work with what I'm mostly focused on right now, which is I have so many individuals that I work with and that I speak to and listen to who are very caught up by the fact that they don't necessarily match the trans or the bi or the queer narratives that they see in the world around them. And it just, it causes so much inner suffering to mm -hmm. know that you're different, to feel that you're different. And then you go out and you find the community and there's this hope, there's this, this idealization of the queer community with like, finally, I'm home, finally, some, some people who will accept me as I am. And then you run into this shame and this anxiety about, oh, I'm not trans in the right way, or mm -hmm. I'm not queer enough, or like, sometimes I like to wear clothes that are cut for the body that I grew up with, you know, and all of these teeny tiny little decisions lead to a massive amounts of anxiety and sometimes even depression as well about fitting into the minority culture. Yeah, I, uh, when I first started exploring my gender, I was 19 and I met another transgender woman. And I told her how brave she was and how much, you know, I wish I had her strength and her bravery to come out because I've always wanted to be her. Yeah. And her response to me was, well, when you see a woman carrying a cute purse, do you ever want it? And I said, no. She goes, then you're not trans. Yeah. And that put me back in the closet for a really long time. And I think one of the things that I want to make sure people know is there's no one right way to be transgender. You know, yes. Uh, everybody experiences it differently, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, there's no right way to suffer from depression either. Like everybody's experience is different, and being different is what makes us all so unique and wonderful. It is. It is. It's. It's difficult though, because even even just what you were saying just now is that everybody is different, and that we all want to appreciate that. That's still a layer of um, a narrative that we all say in the queer community you know we're like we're all different we're all beautiful we're all blah 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 and but the problem is is that for some reason there's still those feelings underneath like for some reason saying those things doesn't actually make the person feel like it is okay to be different and i don't have a solution for this problem but it is something that i'm deeply aware of in mm -hmm. the experiencing of all of us as we make our way through this complicated mess of trying to be humans. You know, I, I actually had a conversation like this with a friend just a couple of nights ago, because, you know, coming out of, of Pride Month, you know, I walked in, in the Pride Parade for the first time. It was great. But she was talking about how she can't believe how many labels there are within the LGBT community. Oh, I know. And she's just like, don't you think, don't you think that hurts? And I said, you know, I said, I think in 20 years, 
we're going to do away with the labels and we're going to just realize that there's this spectrum of gender and sexuality and you fall somewhere on it and whatever it is, it's okay. I said, but right now, people who fall on that spectrum are so prejudiced against, they feel so much hatred and shame mm -hmm. that being able to rally under a term or a flag or something helps you feel like you belong somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that for as long as we need that comfort, that will continue. I just hope that we get to a point eventually where we're going to have that comfort everywhere, right? I talked in my coming out episode about how my hope is 20 years down the road, there's not going to be such a thing as coming out. You know, we're going to get to a point in time where that's going to, to be a real thing. And I can't wait for that day to get here. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> that would just, wow. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I've gotten to talk to a lot of people about their experiences with anxiety. And I know that it can be very mentally and crippling, uh, mentally crippling and physically exhausting. I'm wondering, you know, when you're working with somebody who doesn't feel like they fit in and they're suffering with the anxiety, what are some things that you help them do to sort of manage their anxiety, if anything? Are there any like self-care techniques that you do to help people sort of manage their anxiety? Um, honestly, I'm going to say a really good psychotherapist over a long-term intensive treatment is probably the best thing that you can do to manage anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not available to everyone. Thankfully, there are a lot of us uh, who work with sliding scale. Can you talk just a minute about sliding scale? Because there are a lot of people out there who probably don't know what that is. Oh, yeah, sure. So sliding scale is basically um, a negotiable fee that the psychotherapist works with each individual client to figure out what is possible for them to, for the client to receive high quality treatment, but to not be priced out of something that has historically been considered somewhat elite. Uh, you know, we were, we have a history in psychotherapy of, of treating the quote unquote worried well, which is the people who didn't necessarily have to work all day and could spend hundreds of dollars uh, you know, sometimes even procession. <laughs> um, yeah. But of course, due to the changing financial healthcare landscape, psychotherapists who have a heart for uh, lower income or even just uninsured peoples are making it much a much larger part of their practice nowadays, I think. And, it, you know, I, I started out in, you know, serving the lowest income you know, with people who are only on Medicaid. Um, and so, you know, I, that just became like a value of mine is to make sure that my services are, you know, at least 50, sometimes even 75% of my practice is uh, negotiated according to, to income and uh, ability. So. Thank you for, for that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier. I definitely want to know sort of your, your self-care. I know you were talking about how the best treatment is just really being able to go to a good psychotherapist. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you can have your systems in place, which is how I think about it from my own life. Uh, whenever I get stressed out, people are like, oh, what's your self-care? And I'm like, the systems are in place. <laughs> but really, that just means, you know, I have my hobbies, I have my exercise, I have uh, my things that I, I know make me feel a little bit better. Um, but those things are, they're good over long periods of time. They're not necessarily 
good right in the moment, you know, maybe a hot bath might make you feel good or something, but it's not actually going to deal with um, driving anxieties uh, that can put us into autopilot um, mm -hmm. or an inability to face important relationships or um, an inability to think through conflict. Some of us just freeze up. We just dissociate when conflict is on the horizon. Um, so all of those issues, those deeper things that, uh, you know, accessing our creativity, accessing a sense of, of um, generative anxiety, there's so many different pieces and parts of human experiencing that I, in my experience, I was only able to access them through having intensive depth psychotherapy that continues to this day, but has been, I've been with the same person for seven years now. And so this is not a brief treatment. This is not six to eight sessions. You know, this is like, it's a, it's a, it's a longer and deeper commitment than that. Last year, I want to say in 2017, I got to go to South by Southwest. Hmm. Um, and there was this really interesting presentation about uh, mobile healthcare, right? And one of the things that, that I learned was that the mobile health movement was great for the LGBT community. Mm. And the reason for that is because the LGBT community is very intimidated about going to seek a doctor because they tend to be uh, prejudiced against at a doctor's office. Mm. They get talked down to, they get looked at negatively. The fact that you have a queer friendly practice is a really big deal. Can you sort of talk about the importance of that and how you create an environment that feels safe and welcoming for the people who come into your office? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that question because I think that there is a strong and important difference between um, merely being queer tolerant and actually knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so that comes from personal experience, but I think it could also come from education as well. Um, and so the way that I think about it is that queer friendly, when you see that in a therapy website, um, there's, a, there's a little moment of distrust of maybe that arises, which is like, are they really, do they really understand or are they just saying that to get my business? And that's a very valid possibility, right? But so when it comes from an actual personal experience, you can tell because maybe the copy on the website will be, will have a lot more detail. You know, like it's so important to have somebody who's educated in these issues, who who knows what AFAB and AMAB mean, who, know, you know, who who understands yeah. that HRT and like really um, mixes with one's emotional life in very complicated ways. And, you know, so there's there's queer friendly and then there's like actually educated in the community able to also take in new information while continuing to explore with the person as they're working through 
their issues. And so that's that's just like a personal, like, you know, pet peeve of mine is is when I can tell that they're like, oh, it's fine. It's fine if you're queer. And I'm just like, no, you kind of need to know more, you know, like you need to do your homework. Um, you know, if somebody's not used to using uh, pronouns, like that can also be really off-putting when you step into an office. Yeah. So, yeah, you trust a doctor to take care of you and they can't even, you know, treat you the way you want to be and, treated. You know, they might not intend anything negative. They just haven't come in contact with it yet before. And they might not be willing to do the extra work. And that, I think, you know, speaks to an aspect of culture and work ethic. And you kind of, that's a way that you can feel safe is if somebody uh, knows what you're talking about, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, feeling safe and comfortable is such a big part of seeking health care to begin with. Like, you want to be comfortable where you're going. You don't want to have distrust for who you're talking to. And when it comes to a community like ours, where we're already, I feel like, distrustful of people because of how we've been treated, yeah. like having that comfort of knowing that the person you're going to talk to understands, just, it's such a big deal. Such a big deal. And And I think that's one of the things that made me connect with you so much when we first talked is just knowing that you have this understanding and you're a part of the community and you really take care of us. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. It's, it's really exciting to be in the middle of it. I've been working towards this for many years and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it feels really special right now. So thank you. The main reason we have this podcast is to end the stigma around mental illness. There's obviously a massive stigma around mental health, and unfortunately, there remains a stigma around sexuality and gender identity as a whole. So I'm curious, by combining the two, have you ever had to deal with like strange stigma in your life when people find out what you do and they're like, oh, you do that? <laughs> like, what is it What is it like to for people to find out what you do and who you work with? Well, I'm, a, I'm an odd case because I'm intensely proud of what I do. Um, but so, you know, so I'm a person who's like, I'm like, oh, yeah, queer sex therapist. Um, but the the frustration comes is like moments that I just kind of alluded to where uh, people in the therapeutic community don't necessarily like know what they're talking about. They're very nice. They're very well intentioned, um, but they just don't really get it, you know, and there's there's a lot of continuing education that we all have to do. And this summer, my former school at ICSW, the Institute for Clinical Social Work, they had an entire series dedicated to simply being a woman clinician. And the topic sounded interesting and everything, but I was just so offended. <laughs> they had nothing about queerness or gender identity or transness. I was like, what are we in 1970? Come on, guys. <laughs> and I thought you were going to tell me the whole course was led by a man. Oh, well, so there we go. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so that's in the professional spaces. Um, I think in more in social spaces, you know, you always are dealing with um, people who are worried about you reading their mind or something. Um, of course, I pay very close attention to things all the time but that's also just who I am so um I don't I think I think the fact that I am so uh 
so proud of, of what I do because it's so important to me that uh, it doesn't bother me as much when people kind of look at me askance. That's good. That's very good. Um, so we talked about it before we started, right? The stigma doesn't just exist around mental health. It also exists with relation to seeking out help and seeking out treatment. Actually going to doctor is difficult, right? Well, I might suffer from mental illness, but I do it silently. If I go seek a doctor, that means I'm crazy. Mm. What, in your opinion, can we do to help curb the stigma so that more people are comfortable seeking help and treatment for their mental illness? That is a very good question. Um, You know, we can continue to talk about it in the ways that we are. I think we're doing a much better job of that as a culture. Um, Certainly, you know, shows like this, and I've seen dozens of you know, kind of PSA type videos on Facebook that encourage people uh, to start thinking in that way. Um, but when you get right down to it, the, the nuts and bolts of, of um, having that moment in yourself of recognizing that you need help, you know, a lot of us were raised to be fiercely independent and we do not ask for help easily or well. And, um, so knowing that it's an option there's still a big jump there you know like it's like oh well that's for other people i'm so glad it helps you but it like that's not me that's not my style right and so that moment like attempting to get into that safe space where you can begin to explore with a professional that's, it's honestly going to be up to the individual. And so if we can, as a culture, start to build space where listening to that teeny, tiny, still, small voice inside of ourselves that, you know, is saying, hey, you know, maybe you should have looked at that situation a little bit differently or, you know, maybe you have some regret or... Maybe you're just anxious about something big that's coming up. Maybe you haven't been dealing with life transitions too well and you're becoming aware of that or your friends are beginning to point it out. If we can like begin to listen to ourselves and also to show concern for our friends and for our community, that is so rare. But being like, hey, I'm noticing this about you. I'm worried about you. This isn't, this isn't my pay grade. Like, please, you know, there's help out there. Um, and do, to do so in a, in a tone of, of non-judgmental, uh, you know, perspective or um, to make sure that you do it in a supportive, empathic way. Um, I think that that can be hopeful for our culture in general to hopefully kind of build that up slowly and still and, and quietly and just like supporting people, letting them know that it's okay to ask for help and to listen to themselves in those still quiet moments. So once people have the confidence to seek out help, do you have any recommendations on how they can go about seeing a great doctor? Mm. That one's hard. <laughs> I caught you off guard with that one. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, seeing a great doctor, it all depends on 
So the, the first rule of therapy is that um, you, every, everybody's different and every doctor is different. So just going to the psychologist or going to um, whatever type of therapist you might pick um, does not mean that you will gel with them. And that's okay. That's always the thing. Whenever people tell me their horror stories about bad therapy, and believe me, there's a lot of bad therapists out there, um, I'm always just like, please shop around. Please do not give up. Um, and, you know, see how you feel six sessions in. Don't just go one time and then give up. Um, it, takes, it takes faith and it takes hard work. But also, it's important to be able to listen to yourself again. And if somebody strikes you as rude or cold or unsupportive or even just as I was mentioning before, just frankly uneducated about what you're going through, mm -hmm. it's okay to keep looking. That is totally okay. But then, you know, if you walk into an office and it feels okay enough, then you can kind of settle down and start getting to work and hopefully something beautiful will emerge if both of you stay with your ear to the ground for what might emerge. You know, one of the things we talked about before we got started was how a lot of people are afraid to seek that help, which we talked about, and how people start by going to their, their family practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's dangerous in a lot of ways, yes. um, specifically because they're not trained for this, and they just sort of write a prescription that's kind of a placebo, and then it sort of creates this downward spiral where, oh my gosh, my doctor thought this is what I needed and it didn't work. And then we all blindly trust our doctors, regardless of what they know or don't know. Absolutely. So then people are like, I must be quote unquote crazier than I thought if this didn't help me, or it's going to create a bias that says, this doesn't work, I'm never gonna do it again. Um, do you agree with that? I, I hate asking yes or no question, but do you agree with that and why? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I think that it is honestly a bit criminal um, that GPs are allowed to prescribe psychiatric medication. Um, psych meds are incredibly complex and uh, even after over 50 to 60 years of prescribing them, we still don't actually know that much about how they work. Um, it's so much of it is a crapshoot. And even the majority of the antidepressants that are uh, prescribed today only have a 50% success rate. So if you go in and you give your doctor the list of the DSM symptoms and they give you the most commonly prescribed one or the one that they happen to have samples of and then that is your psychiatric care for the next however many years um yeah through no fault of your own you have unfortunately uh stepped into I don't want to say dangerous but a way of a way of, of talking about and dealing with your mental health that is shockingly reductive and tragically um, unexplored between in the relationship between you and your doctor. I am in no way against medication, but I think that making the decision to take meds and which meds and how you feel while you're on them 
all of those things are incredibly important questions that you should be talking about with a proper psychiatrist who's done many more years of training and uh, is hopefully keeping up on the latest research that a GP is in no way required to do. So we're at the end of the episode, and that means we have time for the last question. And if you've listened before, you know what's coming. Society as a whole tries very hard to define anyone with mental illness by the illness they suffer from, specifically in the media. However, I like to believe that we have the right to define ourselves however we see fit. So even though you may not, uh, you know, even though we may not be talking about your own personal dealings with it, we're talking about uh, your, your work within the community. So I'm curious, and I'd love to hear, Edie, how would you define yourself? What defines Edie? Um, blue hair. And I am, I am playful and I am very, I'm, I'm sharply attuned to details and to how things fit together, connections, thinking, that type of thing. Curious and kind. Yeah. Awesome. Blue hair don't care. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Edie, if somebody was interested in learning more about what you do or seeking you out for help, where could they go? They could go to www.depthcounseling.org. Um, you can book an appointment online there. Uh, you'll see a range of different clinicians. and You can read more about my philosophy and how I approach thinking, experience, emotion, all that type of thing, as well as um, our specialties, which are, of course, you'll get more information on how I understand LGBTQ uh, plus experience. Awesome. Well, there you go. All right. As we close this up, I just want to remind everyone that I am not in any way an expert or doctor. We've heard today a variety of thoughts that we hope will help in the stigma surrounding mental health. If you have ever had thoughts of worthlessness or feel suicidal, please seek out professional help. You can find links to options on our About Us page at ourfracturedminds.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and review the show. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and now officially on Spotify. Edie, thanks so much for joining to, joining me today and for doing everything you're doing in the LGBT community. It just goes to show you that help is out there regardless of your background or community. To everyone out there listening, I bid you farewell, and I look forward to talking with you all again next week on Our Fractured Minds. Mm-hmm.